It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 188. We are answering your questions from the internet. Earlier, I uh, posted a question on my Instagram. It's Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. I asked for question submissions so that Dr. Baraki and I could answer your questions. So I am joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Just been uh, doctoring living life, working in the hospital, but Being, made some time for this today. <laughs> doing, doing doctor stuff. Yeah. Love it. Happy you could uh, join us. Uh, before we hop into this, I don't want to spend too much time on announcements just because we do have a lot of questions and, you know, I want to get to all your questions. I, I'm, uh, I'm a kind, I'm a kind host like that, but we do have a new ske- uh, seminar scheduled. It is in May of 2023. It is in Brooklyn, New York at uh, one of our favorite locations, CrossFit South Brooklyn. Uh, we're going to be heading there. And then again, we do have another live in-person seminar, two-day seminar in LA uh, this November. We're currently trying to work out the rest of our schedule, but those are our two upcoming seminar dates. So if you want to come hang out with us in person, learn the barbell medicine way, do some training, do some lifting, get some coaching, come to one of our seminars. We've got that linked in the description below. Um, also, a new newsletter is about to go out for August 2022. So if you're not subscribed to our newsletter list, what you can do is go over to uh, our website, barbellmedicine.com, and there'll be a, a pop-up. it would be like, hey, do you want to get the latest nuance in health and fitness to your inbox every month? And uh, you can sign up. Now, I know what a lot of people are thinking. They're like, your newsletter list is probably just advertising. It's really not. Like, I think we're doing it wrong. If you were, if you were like a marketer or advertiser and you're listening to this, you're like, these guys are just hammering their newsletter list. We don't do that. We, we literally publish original content in there on a monthly basis. And so if you're just looking for more barbell medicine content and uh, update on any of our you know, seminars or uh, what's, what's coming out, what's coming down the pike, you should sign up for our newsletter list. Uh, it'll be, it's a good one. And then, you know, last but certainly not least, I, I do want to plug our free app and our new apparel. So we have new apparel over the website. If you want to support Barbell Medicine, rep some fresh, fresh clothing in the gym while you're setting PRs. Uh, also, I, this may just be like a like a matchmaker or like a even like friendship maker sort of thing. I get DMs all the time where people are like, I saw a person in a Barbell Medicine shirt and then I went up to them and you said nuance and then we <laughs> became best friends. <laughs> I mean, that is a made up story, but that type of story has happened on a number of occasions. And so, uh, yeah, that's one way to identify like-minded individuals just wear barbell medicine. It's actually a funny story relate, pertaining to New York. Um, a person uh, who's been a longtime barbell medicine acolyte was trying to do a drop-in at this gym. Uh, she recently moved, and uh, I guess she mentioned barbell medicine, and apparently they're big fans at the gym, which is, one, a good thing, and then, two, surprising, because, like, how did – I mean, I don't know. How do they come across our stuff? But yeah, apparently they don't do drop-ins, but they let her train because she was a barbell medicine fan. Ooh, so, magic, you know, magic words. Yeah. Nice. I, you could have a magic t-shirt. You won't even have to say it. So, um, <laughs> yep. And last but not least, our, our app is available for free in the uh, Apple app store. Uh, you can have access to all of our content, free samples of all of our templates, some of our free templates, uh, all of our free templates are in there, including the new strongman. Uh, template that uh, Alan Thrall and I uh, collaborated on. And then also, if you're wondering, like, what program should I run? We've got an algorithm for how to pick a template. So that could be useful. All right. No more further announcements. Let's pop into this Q&A. Again, these are questions submitted from you, the internet at large, and uh, we're going to go through them. I've separated them into different categories, programming, training, medical, nutrition, and potpourri. Uh, potpourri, of course, being my favorite, but uh, we'll save that for the la- for last. So these are programming questions to start out with. So first off, first question, do you specifically schedule deloads and training 
or just when you feel like it? And there was actually a second question that kind of pertains to this. It's information on when to deload, currently running a barbell medicine block long term. So Austin, I feel like we talked about this in the last podcast. That was uh, episode 187. when We were talking about progressive loading, you know, when to deload, what is a deload, et cetera. But, you know, it's a new podcast. It's a new day. So just what is a deload? Um, I think that different people may uh, interpret this term differently or apply it differently in their own training. But I think that if we're viewing, you know, the overall training that you're doing, whatever kind of training it is, whether it be strength focused, hypertrophy focused, conditioning focused, or some other sport, you know, a training program is putting some form of loading and some form of stimulus on you, the, the, the human. And so when, for whatever reason, uh, we want to uh, dial that back uh, in in some form to reduce that amount of stress, to reduce that amount of loading. And again, there are a variety of reasons why you may want to do this, which is what we'll get into. Um, that is kind of gent can be a broad umbrella term conceptualized as a deload. It could be reductions in absolute weight that you're lifting. It could be reductions in, in intensity in other ways. For example, in other like non-strength focused uh, tasks that you're training for could be reductions in training volume, could be reductions in training frequency, basically like just turning down the knob on whatever, you know, programming variable you want. And technically those would probably all fit under the umbrella of a deload. Most people typically refer to it um, uh, in a way that describes a situation where they're reducing either absolute loading or training volume or both. Um, I would say that's probably the most common way that it's, that it's applied in training. Yeah. I think we could, you know, hem and haw and make up a bunch of definitions. We're like, how does a taper differ from a deload? What is a pivot week versus a deload? What is a it's low stress week? Pre- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for like the purposes of a book or a training manual or a text or whatever, you certainly need to, you know, inform the audience of what you're talking about and keep the the definitions consistent. But for this purpose, I think, yeah, a decrease in load and or volume, usually both, that seems to broadly apply to this umbrella term that we call a deload. So when should you do one? And I think, you know, like I said, we covered this in the last podcast, um, but my feeling on this is that effectively there are two broad categories for when you'd want to do this, one being psychological and the other one being physiological. And of course, it doesn't have to be an either or, you could have both. Um, But if you feel like you need a deload or you want a deload, so for example, your training has gone stale, you're not enjoying it anymore, you feel like it's a grind, it's a drag, you're slogging through it or whatever, and you just want to deload go for it. That'd probably be more of a psychological sort of based reason to deload, but you could have also physiological signs, you know, so for example, if you're starting to develop what you feel like maybe some sort of injury, some sort of nagging, you know, pains um, that you're just not really willing to tolerate for any other particular goal, like you don't have a meet coming up, for example, or it's just been going on for too long, that may be a physiological sign that you should deload, may benefit from a deload. But, you know, if you want to or, or feel like you need to, take a deload. I mean, the, the bigger thing here is, is how often you're doing these things and then why. So if you're doing them every fourth week, every third week, some sort of, you know, predictable schedule like that, that tells me like the training probably needs to be adjusted so that you can have a longer period of time without a deload. That means you can string together more successive consecutive weeks of training. Um, the only other reason that I would do uh, a deload is sort of this logistical kind of category. It's like this addendum to either psychological or physiological. Like if you're traveling, moving, otherwise don't have access to train, you may need to do a deload just because of what's going on in your life or you're changing training so significantly for a different training goal that you are not really prepared to jump headfirst into. And you need to like 
you know, move from like an energy systems development block where you're doing a bunch of cardio, conditioning, GPP work, non, you know, heavy resistance training stuff, and you're switching to like a powerlifting prep. It may benefit you to have a deload week and a sort of on-ramp period where you're gradually building um, tolerance of squat bench deadlift at higher intensities because you haven't really been doing that. And so, yeah, you could start that with a deload week if you wanted to. Um, any other cases where you think, yep, you definitely need to take a deload? Uh, no, not, not exactly. The only other comment I had is, is that I think that people ought to recognize that, um, the calendar is completely made up and arbitrary as well. well and that's so, true. The Gregorian calendar think, does not make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so in my own training, like, yeah, I don't do like a, a predetermined length deload periods, like a week or something like that. And, and I've gotten away from that with a lot of people as well for a few reasons. One, I think that there's no guarantee that one week is going to be the exact right amount of time that you need to dissipate whatever either, you know, fatigue you're dealing with or like for your, if it is a psychological thing for like your mental state to bounce back. And I feel like when we set these kind of uh, parameters of like, it's going to be a deload week where you chill and then you come back next week and you're going to be like incredible. And like, there's no guarantee that's going to happen either. So people might come into the next week with expectations that it's just going to be like, you know, amazing, or they're going to feel awesome. Or maybe even like, they're like, Oh, I'm going to be so recovered. I'm going to PR or something. It's like, one of that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know? So in my own training, I really, like I've described before, tend to just kind of ride the waves. And so like, I might effectively deload by taking weight off the bar. If the RPE, you know, that I'm aiming for kind of requires it session to session. And so that might mean that, Hey, like maybe Monday, Tuesday, I'm having like a couple down days and I need to pull back a little bit. Cause I'm just not as strong that day, or maybe I'm mentally fried or whatever the case is, but I'm not saying, Oh, I'm just going to like write off the whole week. It's going to be deload week. Cause who knows, maybe by Thursday, Friday, I'm going to be a f- feeling awesome and be back on, back on top again. So that's kind of how I do it in my own training is just kind of ride the ups and downs without like dedicated start to finish like deloads as in particular a week. Um, but you can do whatever you want with it. So yeah, it's already baked into your training where exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Question number two, is it fine to add a single at RP eight to gauge performance potential of the day on your templates? I mean, as an autonomously, we think functioning adult, you can do whatever you want. Um, but, and this is like a Dr. Jeff Goldblum quote, I think from Jurassic park. He's like, (laughs) you're always thinking about whether you could, when you should be thinking about whether you should or something to that effect. It's like, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And and so basically what you're using the single at eight, uh, one repetition or RP eight is the sort of performance potential metric. And if you're doing similar type training to that, meaning you're doing other singles, you know, higher intensity triples, sets of four or five, things that are like relatively closely related, a single at eight is probably going to be fairly predictive um, as far as accuracy and, and precision goes. But if you're like using a single at eight to gauge what you should load on the bar for a set of 10, I don't think that that correlates that well. So it really just depends on what you're trying to do for the day. And then also um, as a you know secondary concern, like what type of lifter are you? Because a lot of people with the single at eight, it, it really just turns into a single at 10, like just max out and then see what happens. And if that's you, I think that person could probably use more time spent training away from singles and just use singles when you do have a meet or a test or you're really trying to push that. Um, and you kind of you know, reserve that ace in the hole 
to practice your singles uh, just because you tend to overshoot and, and you know maybe it's not uh, on balance beneficial to you. But I, I don't think you need to add a single at eight if there's already a top set in place. So for example, most of our templates have a top set of three or four or five or in some other cases, eight or 10. Well, just use sets of five or eight or 10 or whatever the prescription is all the way up. And that'll kind of tell you during warmups, like, eh, my performance potential is about average compared to what it's been the last few weeks, or it's above average or it's below average. And that's granular enough to pick the weight. I don't think you have to do a single unless again, you're doing triples or fives and you really want to do a single in which case, I mean, I guess you can, but should you, you know? Yeah. And I think the only other caveat I would add is that this is something that assumes that you care about your one rep performance on that particular exercise, right? So like, I'm not going to do a single at eight on a curl before my main work on curls. Um, sure. So if you're training towards, you know, presumably like, you know, our, our assumption here is that you probably care about your SVD performance for, you know, singles. And so that would be, if you were to incorporate something like this, I would only put it on those lifts. And then yes, I agree. It would only be in a training phase where the, you know, quote unquote back off work from that, or the main, you know, rep or volume work for the day is typically in lower rep ranges because calculating, yeah, you're right. Like a 10 at eight off of a one at eight, uh, is not going to be very good. I know that like me and you, for example, would have very different performances. Um, you know, if we were to calculate our set of 10 off of a given single, just because of our, yeah. you know, the way we're, the way we're wired up as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think, think about doing this for like conditioning. Let's say you had to go do like a, you were going to do the assault bike or the air bike for, you know, a 20 minute time trial. And in order to gauge your target pace or whatever, you did like a wattage test for 10 seconds. It's like, it's probably not going to, that's probably not going to correlate very well to predict the pace you should use for 20 minutes. But a five minute piece might, if you need that to like give you the constraints to work within for pacing. But I, but I think, you know, for both of us, if we're not doing singles or triples or whatever for the day, uh, then we can pretty much ballpark it by our warm up sets on the way up. You know, if you got to work up to a heavy set of five, you kind of can feel it by doing sets of five on the way up, you know. And, and it's also never an isolated thing because we have the context of our recent training as well. Mm -hmm. To like the, the recent training gives us like general goalposts. And then on the day of each warm up set narrows those goalposts a little bit more to where we ultimately end up. Yeah. Layered on top of lots and lots of training history, which, you know, some people on the one hand, it, it, it can be a benefit. Like if you're just drawing upon all that experience to pick the correct load, but it also can be a hindrance because you're like, well, I previously have done this. Yeah. Like yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> well, so yesterday I had, um, I did a SBD day. So a safety squat bar squat for a set of six at nine and then back offs much lighter than that feet up bench for a set of six at nine and then lighter back offs and then deficit pulls six at nine and then lighter back offs. And uh, I was like, I wonder what's a good set of six for these deficit pulls. And then I like went back through my Instagram, just kind of like revisit this and i was like well one day i did 600 for six and i was mm -hmm. like uh, not today yeah <laughs> <laughs> not 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 today but but i'm thinking i'm like all right well if that's my best performance that i've ever had you know i should be somewhere probably within 10 percent of that i would guess yeah okay next question question number three would rpe based on bar speed loss rather than true failure be better for fatigue mitigation um uh, my, my take on this is it is, is there's multiple points. One, we're not really trying to mitigate fatigue. We're trying to manage it. Like we know and expect and on some level want fatigue to accrue. We just don't want fatigue out of proportion to the potential training stimulus 
and subsequent fitness adaptations that we can get uh, to, to accrue. So we're really trying to manage it, not like block it. If we were trying to block it, what we would do is like do a really low volume program and then feed everybody a ton of NSAIDs and vitamin C post-workout and be like, no fatigue. And it's like, yeah, but you might get less gains that way. Um, anyway, so you can use bar speed loss. Um, but I would say that your subjective ability to like discern small changes in bar velocity loss, like 10% loss versus 12%, it, it's probably not quite as good of a scale to use compared to a reps in reserve scale. So two reps left in the tank, three reps left in the tank or something like that. If you have a bar speed tracker, it'll tell you, it'll yell at you or beep at you or, or whatever, or play, you know, a big papa quote, you know, like, <laughs> just and tell you like, oh, you, you hit that mark. But I think it's difficult uh, when you look at, you know, what is the target bar velocity loss for a given set? You're looking somewhere in that 10 to 20% range, you know, uh, that's what the present data kind of says. And so can you discern between 10 and 15%, 10 and 20%? And I think most people probably not, probably not, unless there's like a big drop off and you're like, well, that was definitely greater than 20%. Because, But it's like, you could have done that with a reps and reserve scale as well. So, so I don't know if it's better, um, but if you have the tool and you want to use it, go for it. And I, I'll say this before I let you hop in. We both have purchased bar velocity trackers and neither of us use them <laughs> correct <laughs> and it doesn't mean that they're not useful it's just like it's not adding any very important information for us i could think of designing you a block for example where it's like all right you're going to work up to a set of triple a set of three at eight and then you're going to do back offs at 70 percent of your e1rm and you're going to take each of those sets to 15 percent velocity loss at that point you need a bar uh, the velocity tracker yeah. to yeah. execute the programming but is that better than taking all your sets to rp6 or seven I don't know. Yeah. And and that's going to be like a combination of individual preference thing. And maybe that may be a good tool to like mitigate the kind of person who you were talking about earlier. The, the overshooter, for example, might be a way to handle that kind of scenario. Um, so yeah, I think we've gravitated towards what we're comfortable with, but it's not necessarily the right way or the, the, the way that everybody, you know, ought to do this. I think just the main point that I would add to, you know, respond to the original question is, as far as like routine general strength training, I know that there are going to be a lot of people who say, you know, training should be super, you know, needs to be really hard to be effective. We've, we've hammered on this topic a lot before. And, and I honestly think that like people can go through an entire training career and not go to true failure and be fine and like, fine. Do, do, yeah. do just okay, do, do great. So, um, I don't know that true failure needs to even really be in the, in the, in the conversation. Um, uh, some people are going to argue that you'll never know what failure is unless you hit it. And so and I'm like, okay, I mean, maybe that's true, but how much am I losing by not going that far? Um, what, what are the trade-offs be it in terms of like acute, like, you know, fatigue and stimulus trade-offs versus like injury risk versus a bunch of other things. And I'm just unconvinced that the value that do, that, that adds is, you know, super worthwhile. Um, I look back over the sets that I've done over my training career and like taking a fair, I'm like, how, how much further behind where I am now would I be if I cut those sets like a, a rep or two or three short. And it, it's the, the idea that I would be substantially further behind than where I am now is kind of laughable to me, but anyway, yeah. it probably washes out. Yeah. Yes. Cool. All right. Next question. How do you objectively measure recovery or fatigue accumulation? Uh, so this is actually pretty tough to do. Like how do you measure fatigue? Um, you, you can objectively measure the balance of fitness adaptations relative to fatigue via demonstrable performances. That's one way to do it. Um, though there are confounders 
there, like your environment, mood, motivation, et cetera. This is one of those things we talked about in the last podcast that just adds variability in your day-to-day performance. But if you're trying to look at like, okay, well, how many, you know, how much fatigue do I have on board compared to current fitness adaptations? Well, your performance for that day kind of tells you like, that's where you're at, you know, with again, the noted confounders. Um, An interesting thing is you can measure this at a more like short-term basis, like how much fatigue are you accumulating in a given session? Uh, so for example, you can measure RPE, reps and reserve, barbell velocity loss, ratings of fatigue after a session. And, and those tend to be reasonably accurate because we have not allowed enough time for fitness adaptations to accrue. So all you're measuring at that point is like, well, how much fatigue did you generate in a single session? And so if we think that strength, hypertrophy, cardiorespiratory fitness takes days, weeks, longer than that to ultimately be fully realized, you know, in a short term, we can kind of tell you like how much fatigue relative to another session that you've, you know, accumulated. But I don't know that there's like a stress index, you know, that got, that has a numerical value associated with it is going to give you like accurate feedback. Oh, well, that session, uh, for example, was 10 stress units and this session was eight stress units. And so, eh, I don't know that it's that granular, but I do think that you could compare one session to another based on your rating of fatigue. For example, we use the SRPE session rating of perceived exertion, which is really more of a rating of how, you know, fatigue, like how fatigued are you at the end of the session or how hard was that session? Um, And you could just compare that session was harder than this one, or I feel more fatigued after this session than another. Uh, So you can put it in like those relative terms, but as far as like absolute, you know, units of fatigue, that's, that's tough. It'd be cool if you could, you can measure a bunch of stuff in your blood creatine kinase, interleukin-6, you know, whatever, lactate, hydrogen, you know, concentration, et cetera. But none of those correlate very well with either demonstrable fatigue, which is performance loss, uh, or demonstrable, you know, improvements in fitness adaptations relative to fatigue. So demonstrable performance. Uh, so yeah, I think you can do it relative to one session to another, but not, you know, in a broader landscape, I think. Yeah, you and and insofar as you can do it, but you know, comparing between sessions, you are still describing it in terms of a subjective rating of, of comparing because you could have sessions, one session that's easier on paper, and another session that's harder on paper. But depending on what you're bringing into the session on each of those days, the easier one may end up feeling harder for you if you're more sleep deprived or if you know whatever the case is, a whole bunch of other factors that go into it. And so, when I read this question, my answer is just that you can't objectively measure recovery or fatigue. I would, I would just you know turn the question around to the person and say this is the same, this is the same situation we're in when people ask us. How can we objectively measure pain? Uh, like we can't outside of the rating that the person tells us or like what the person tells us. Um, you mean to tell to me that the visual analog scale is not objective? <laughs> it is a subjective rating scale. Yes, it is uh, our best attempt to uh, make objective something that is subjective. And and I and again, like people may be thinking like, well, you do the same thing with RPE. And it's like, yeah. And the point is that there's all this complicated, intangible, subjective stuff that actually influences our reality, our experience, and should influence our decision-making that we shouldn't ignore. So like objectivity, quote unquote, like a, for example, a blood biomarker is not necessarily better uh, in this mm-hmm. situation. And in fact, when it's researched, like it ends up being worse. So. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. Th- there's a dissociated, you know, connection between creatine kinase or C-reactive protein in the blood, these are measures of, you know, inflammation or muscle breakdown or whatever and actual performance. And so you're like, well, just I can measure it. Should I? And again, back to the Goldblum quote, like just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Things are fuzzy. You have to accept it. I wish I would have watched Jurassic Park more recently to get that quote 
perfectly accurate because I feel like when he <laughs> delivered it, it was like, boom, Oscar. <laughs> All right. Moving on from programming to training. Okay. What are the benefits of knee sleeves for lifting? Is there any utility to using knee sleeves if no pain exists? I'd just like to say we live in this capitalistic society in the United States and, you know, the benefit of knee sleeves is probably more to the <laughs> the maker of the knee sleeves than anybody else. But uh, I know there's some data on uh, people with osteoarthritis of the knee using a neoprene knee sleeve and having less pain um, and therefore being able to participate in more activities and exercise and stuff like that. So, but that's, you know, when pain exists, presumably. Uh, and that's and, pretty, that's pretty tough to like sham control that kind of thing. So there's going to be yeah. some placebo type non-specific effects of that right yeah i think what you'd have to do is you'd have to have like one person with a knee sleeve that provides x amount of pressure as measured by some sort of pressure gauge you know some sort of compression at, at a particular level versus no compression but still a sleeve and then be like actually it's just the thing on your leg that you know it's there <laughs> right. I, I don't know um yeah we don't think that knee sleeves provide any sort of mechanical like energy storage like a knee wrap although I think people who are using those new Inzer knee sleeves may disagree. There's probably have, some non-zero amount for very tight ones, I would guess. But yeah, have you seen people walking around in these Inzer knee sleeves? No, no, I've not. <laughs> they are waddling around like they're wearing knee wraps. It's like a return to equipped lifting all over again. You know, it's like, oh, what knee wrap are you using? How long? And how many times around your leg did you go? You know, these people used to post. If you were a raw powerlifter or just like powerlifting curious and haven't been in the in the game for a minute. It used to be where people would post like a squat video and they'd say, oh, loose two and a half meter knee wraps, you know, five revolutions or whatever. <laughs> Here's what I squatted. The idea being like, oh, well, if I use a longer knee wrap with more revolutions, then I, it's going to be tighter, provide more assistance. I'm going to squat more. People don't do that anymore, but we're kind of returning to that with these new knee sleeves like, oh, these are nine millimeter thick, double ply, quadruple stitched you know, Kevlar infused, whatever. Hey, call uh, it a new PR. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You just got to change it. Yeah, you move the goalposts. So I don't know. I, I I, mean, you and I have both squatted our heaviest weights with knee sleeves on. Uh, is there a non-zero amount of mechanical uh, energy storage there? Uh, maybe. I, I don't think so, but maybe. I just think that the elastic dynamics and all that stuff, which is way above my pay grade, um, is probably not significant, but it does make me feel better. And I don't know if it's just the placebo compression on my, my knee joint just because I like to be stylish or because I'm self-conscious of the way my knees look. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I, I will tell you that the heaviest squats done for me, for you, for most individuals competing in powerlifting um, are done with knee sleeves. And I think you know, can you separate the mind and the body? Like, I, mm, I, don't, I don't think so in this, in this case. So that said, you can live a full and complete life without knee sleeves. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're, they're comfy and that's about as far as I'm willing to go. Um, but if I have like a client who doesn't have them and they, you know, they're like, Hey, like what's most important for me to get, should I get these things? That doesn't even, that doesn't even show up on the radar of things that I recommend that they get. Um, it's only if they bring it up because they're very powerlifting curious or whatever the case is, or, mm -hmm. if, you know, if they think that it may help them train again, more sustainably, if they have, you know, knee symptoms and this is like the most benign placebo type intervention that they're willing to, to engage in, um, then that's fine. But yeah, I'm, I am skeptical that they do much. Um, yeah. 
outside of, again, extremes of tightness and thickness, which is, again, as you have described with these perhaps Enzer ones, maybe simulating more of a wrap type scenario. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, well, see, so even with the wrap, there's been some concern of like a traction apophysitis, like you're basically compressing down on the patella, the the quadriceps ligament, the patellar tendon the ligament uh, so much that you actually create this like, you know, apophysitis kind of situation, which I suppose is possible if you're really cranking down on those things. I mean, I, mean, I, I think, think we, we would both agree that knee sleeves are comfy, knee wraps, not comfy. <laughs> no, in fact, I thought, so I did a meet back in 2014 in knee wraps. And, you know, the problem was that the training sessions dragged on forever because for every squat set, you're wrapping and unwrapping, and then you got to wrap the wrap before you wrap your knee and the, all this stuff. <laughs> and I even had this like idea back in 18, I think it was 18 or 19 that I was like, oh, I'm going to do another classic raw with wraps meet just to see if I can, you know, beat my PR. I had one training session. I was like, nah, just nah. It's just, it takes too much time for me. It took too much time. And just so I could lift more weight because I changed the goalposts, eh, not really, not really interested. Put the knee sleeve on if you want or don't. Like I, I just, I just don't care. And we get, we got no sponsors on this, on this podcast right now. So whatever brand you like, go for it. <laughs> I don't have any allegiance. Yeah. All right. So how should one train, Dr. Baraki, this is just right up your alley. How should one train when trying to maximize hypertrophy and aesthetics? You are the aesthetic boy oh, right yeah. now. <laughs> I, you know, you, you brought this on yourself. You know that. How's that? You were just posting all these thirst traps on the oh. gram. You just moving to the desert and training in my garage now. <laughs> I, did you just lose all of your shirts? Like you just, <laughs> you need us to send you some more gear, like because you just don't have any shirts. Like, what's the deal? Yeah, hypertrophy and aesthetics is not something that has been my primary goal in training effectively ever. I think any to it to the extent that any of that has emerged, it has been secondary <laughs> or uh, incidental to my primary primary training. So. I don't claim to be like, you know, the world's expert in bodybuilding, hypertrophy, aesthetic type training, but this is not a novel topic for us to discuss. I think that, uh, you know, basically the question is how can I get jacked and lean, I suppose. And, and the lean side of the equation principally is going to be, you know, a, a matter of your nutritional management for, for most folks, I think alongside the training that would support building the, the necessary muscle mass that you're to, to, to create the look that you're going for, whatever that, that may be, um, be it a powerlifting aesthetic or a bodybuilding aesthetic, or I know there's all these different subdivisions of bodybuilding that look for, that look for different things. Um, and so ultimately, you know, similar to our conversations around, uh, uh, powerlifting type training or strength type training, we're aiming to deliver the type of stimulus that gives us the biggest bang for our buck. And what that means is delivering the best kind of stimuli for muscular hypertrophy, uh, that give us the best trade-off with fatigue, because then we can do, you know, we can gradually over time increase the amount we're doing, and that will help us to over the very, very, very long term, um, build as much muscle as we physiologically can carry. And so, you know, if somebody wants to work with us, for example, and their primary goal is hypertrophy, we are definitely training them very differently from, you know, somebody who's more powerlifting focused. Not only are they not doing, um, you know, like singles on the main powerlifts or something like that. For some people, the main powerlifts are not even going to be a primary focus or a secondary focus. Like they may take tertiary. So if, if somebody says, I don't really care to do much, you know, conventional deadlifting from the floor, it's like, cool, it's gone. Like there are so many more options 
when the task that you are training for uh, is not measured by the actual exercise itself, as is something like powerlifting or weightlifting or something like that. So um, the the exercise selection, there's not going to, if we're going to talk basically pro- programming variable kind of conversation, there's not going to be a standardized exercise selection. It's going to be really variable by, by the person, but we want to hit all the major muscle groups. We're going to hit them, you know, in, in our bias is going to be hitting them multiple times a week as probably compared with maybe some more traditional types who may do, you know, a more, uh, isolated split type across the week where it's getting, where the muscle groups are getting hit relatively infrequently. We're going to aim probably to start with a moderate amount of training volume at a moderate type intensity, and then escalate that gradually over time. And, and our emphasis probably most of the time, particularly on the bigger potentially more fatiguing movements is going to be staying, you know, maybe a little more, couple more reps further away from failure and trying to uh, accumulate training volume over time. And as you've discussed on the more isolation type, lower fatigue type movements, be it a curl or something like that, then it's totally fine to push the intensity a little higher, get a little closer to failure. And then, um, you know, alongside all that, the, the nutrition side of things, I think is probably less different, uh, compared to what our recommendations would be for general health, for, uh, strength development in terms of protein intake and and the other energy composition, be it like carbohydrate fat intake, but you're just going to have to be more strict and and tight with the actual amount of calories. If you want to achieve a certain level of leanness, which again, not something that I care to do personally, but I can recognize and appreciate that that may be other people's goals as well, for sure. Yeah. I think the biggest difference between like a strength focused approach and hypertrophy focused approach is going to be the balance of, you know, compound to, uh, isolation type exercises and specifically like how much of your training is dedicated to SBD or squat bench, deadlift and press for just whatever you're trying to get strong in. It could be anything. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So like for hypertrophy, there are no movements that are written in stone, but yeah, I agree. Training all the major muscle groups at an intensity that gets you somewhere near failure for a rep scheme. Um, that's been predetermined. And, uh, yeah, as you, as the movement becomes more and more of like an isolation type movement, get closer and closer to failure. And then it's something that you said that I think people are going to underappreciate is when you're starting with a moderate amount of volume, you know, when people are like, Oh, I'm going to do a bodybuilding program. Now, most bodybuilding programs that are available, especially ones written in magazines or written by, you know, people who are much further along in their training career and you don't coach people, you know, across the spectrum of, you know, training history, they're going to be at volume levels that are too high for the individual to thrive in. And so a person may be able to do the program, complete all the training. And they're like, well, I didn't get that much bigger. It's like, it's just too much. F- effectively, you were, you know, squandering all of your resources just to keep your head above water. So you could like live <laughs> and like make it to the next session but you don't have enough extra resources on board to grow. And some people will say, well, you just got to eat more. It's like, well, that's not going to pull you. You don't have enough training tolerance at that time to uh, sort of thrive in that amount of training volume. So yeah, it's going to start probably lower than people think. They're like, why am, why am I not doing like eight sets of leg press and 10 sets of you know leg extension? It's like, well, we might get there eventually, but if you start there, I'm almost surely burying you in a fatigue pit of despair. And then, and then what do we do? Um, so yeah, I, I think that's something that people should take away uh, from this. And then, yeah, the nutrition side, I think you covered adequately. And so it just depends on what you're trying to look, you know, what you're trying to look like aesthetic wise. And if you're not trying to like look a particular way, that's fine too. Like I, we just want more people to be active and meet the meet and exceed the physical activity guidelines. If being jacked is your, is your thing, that's what you want. Cool. We have some resources for you. If you want to get strong, we have resources for you, but there's not one like morally better choice here. The, 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 the choice is more mostly personal preference and like, what do you need to be able to do? And if 
there's no real like recreational pursuit of competitiveness that you're searching for. Like, I don't know that I'd make any compromises, you know, and be like, you have to squat bench deadlift every week or you have to do singles or you shouldn't do isolation lifts, like do it all, you know, in an intelligently programmed way. Cool. Next question. Could training volume be managed kind of the same way as load, i.e. doing more on good days and less on bad days? Question mark. What do you think about this one, Baraki? Yeah, so I, I think this is just asking, can you auto-regulate training volume? And I think you you totally can. That's a very, that's completely a viable training strategy. I think that um, there are definitely ways to do it. There are ways that some of our templates even incorporate some of that. Um, I think that you have to be careful, though. You have There have to be some kind of... Um, goalposts or parameters or something like that in place um, for this to be really feasible because, um, you know, a, a potential concern could be like, I've had days where I feel really good and I'm on my back off sets, for example, and I'm like, I could literally do sets of this all day <laughs> forever and, at infinitum <laughs> and, and and obviously that is not a smart idea because then likely the subsequent sessions that week are going to end up being bad days whether i want them to be or not and i'd have to pull way 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 back and then you kind of risk running into a situation where you're yo-yoing a little bit like you you wreck yourself on days that are good by going to you know doing too much and and vice versa and that's not unlike what can happen with inappropriate absolute loading on the, on the bar, um, that can, that can happen there as well. So I think that having some parameters in place to, um, to keep you kind of within a safety, a safe range of like how many more sets are, is, is okay to do (laughs) in the context of your training program. And if you're going to have to back off, what's the lowest that you're going to go in this situation? Um, because I think that, you know, if the swings are too wide, then it makes it pretty difficult for you to suss out, like, um, what you are responding to in the context of the training program. Like, am I responding well, poorly? And, and, and if I am, or I'm, I'm not, um, trying to figure out why that could be happening is, muddied quite a bit if the training volume is swinging wildly, like be it session to session or, or week to week. In my own training, I actually don't do this a ton. Uh, there are some times where I'm like, I'm feeling good enough or I'll just tack on one more set. Or if I'm feeling poorly enough, I might pull off one. Um, but that's about as far as I go in my own. And I tend to mo- most often keep my training volume overall the same and just scale the loading. And I feel like that for me personally helps me kind of get a better sense of like, how am I doing overall with the current setup and and making tweaks to it over time uh, rather than introducing that additional variable. But there's, it is totally fine to, to scale training volume. The, the last thing I would say is you also need to caveat like, what do you mean by training volume here? Are you going to be doing something where you are scaling the total number of reps that you do um, in a session? Or is it going to be like a set uh, rep count per set, but you're going to scale the number of sets? There's just a lot of ways to do this. And so I'll, I'll let you maybe comment on how some of the templates do it and what your what your thoughts are and approaches. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I agree that having constraints is probably useful because the idea is to deliver the total, the correct total amount of stress on a given day um, and over a series of training sessions. And ultimately we feel like that hedges our bets the, in the best possible way to yield the best possible result. Um, there are multiple different ways to do this. If you, for example, want to actually keep the volume the same, um, you could have a rep count that you're trying to go towards, a set RPE that you're not going to exceed, and then you adjust the reps per set in order to get there. So you're doing squats, three at seven, you're going to do 12 total reps. You're going to keep the weight the same as the three at seven and then adjust the reps per set, you know, in a, in a way where each set is RP seven or, you know, as you get to the end, it might be less because you ran out of reps to do. Um, that you're keeping the volume the same, so you're not really adjusting the volume up or down, uh, but you are adjusting your 
the amount of reps that you're completing per set in order to uh, keep the proximity to failure the same. So we do that in our low fatigue template. We also do that in Power Building 3 template and a few of our other templates. That's one approach you can use. Another way to actually adjust the actual volume where it actually may change up or down um, is going to be by instilling some sort of time cap. So for example, uh, you could do a set of five reps at eight then take 75% of that and do another three sets of five uh, with that. And you have a 15 minute time cap to do all of that. The idea would be in like, if your performance is up on a particular day, so you're feeling good, recovering quickly, et cetera, all these sort of like markers that, Hey, yeah, things are uh, going well. You get that done in 15 minutes on days you get all of it done, right? So your volume is 20, but on days that you're not really feeling it, you're not motivations, maybe down all these other sort of soft things. You maybe only do two sets or one set and you're like, eh, that's it. So a couple different ways to do it. Um, there, is there one best way? Eh. Uh, and another another thing you can do, uh, for example, you could do a set of five at eight and then take 5% off the bar and do sets of five until it reaches RP9, for example, or RP8 again. And at that point, you're adjusting how much volume you're doing based on how you feel and your current performance potential for the day. Many different ways to do this. And I think that as your constraints get bigger and bigger and bigger, there's more room for error and I fear I'm more fearful of people like digging themselves into this fatigue pit of despair, as I said on the last podcast and now twice on this podcast, than, than underdoing it. If you underdo it a little bit, I feel like it's most likely going to be hard enough to be beneficial. But yeah, maybe you left some gains on the table. But I'd rather err on that side than overshoot and you did too much and now you're yo-yoing or you're kind of – if you do that multiple times in a row, now you're in a free fall and you're like, man, we got to make some big, big changes. I'd rather be a little under than, than over. That'd be my personal preference. Cool. All right. And yeah, so like I said, if you want practical examples of how we do that, power building three template, low fatigue template um, discusses like why we do this, how we do this, and gives you practical examples of like how to put this in your training and full on training blocks. So if you're curious on templates and like maybe how to do it, those would be my go-tos on that. Okay. How to auto-regulate a program for an injury when the pain is delayed, i.e. it's not during a workout, but rather afterwards. So this is, I, I, I'm trying to think of a time where I've had this, where I felt like I am great during a session, no pain, no nothing. And then like hours later, I'm like, oh boy, what happened? And I can't recall, it doesn't mean it's never happened, but I can't recall something like this outside of like DOMS. You know, um, so let's just take Dom's off the table, delayed onset muscle soreness. We're not talking about that. We're more talking about a person maybe who's dealing with like low back pain, knee pain, some other sort of joint centric joint located pain that doesn't bother them when they're training, but later on they feel it. So how, how would you approach this Brocky? Yeah, this is something I think that I've definitely seen. This is something that we get questions about from time to time. Something that actually my wife Lorraine experienced like within the past week, um, and, and so we're, we're kind of uh, fixing that up. And so I think in some ways this ties into some of our previous answers in the last couple questions about tending, tending towards undershooting oftentimes being preferable <laughs> towards tending to overshooting. And so, you know, in rehab situations, everybody wants to feel better. Everybody wants to get back to doing PRs and be the strongest they've ever been again. Um, and, and that leads so many people, hey, both of us included at certain points during our training careers to rush the process and to go too quick and to piss things off again, and then ultimately make the process take longer than it needs. And I think that all of us obviously want to, uh, uh, again, get strong PR again. And, and many of us were kind of imbued with this idea of like efficiency. You want to do things 
optimally as fast as possible. Anything else is wasting time. And it's like, man, now we have a little bit more perspective, I think. And it's like, you got, you actually got a lot of time. <laughs> like not the point when we've been training for, you know, well over a decade, people have been training for multiple decades, you know, they can't really make an argument that like, man, you really don't have enough time to like get strong because most of our time now is spent not PRing and not due to being injured all the time, but because it just takes a really long time to accumulate the amount of training stimulus again for, as I've said recently, for the stars to align for, for PRs to come through. And so rushing the process tends to be, I think, the biggest issue. And so if we can get people to just even in, in these situations, like if we keep hitting a wall of like, I, I keep doing this and it pisses it off, like I want to aggressively undershoot um, in terms of loading. And I am more likely to just more radically change change what the exercises are, um, do something very much more different and pull the load way back because all I want in that situation, I just want to have like a win. I want you to have a session where you feel both good during the session and after the session, because that's how we start to snowball positive kind of momentum and build up, you know, both psychological, physiological kind of positive momentum. And then we can layer in what you actually want to be doing gradually over time. And so my bottom line answer is, pulling the loading way back definitely more than you want it to be until you can find that entry point. And if you're doing the thing you want to do, even super light, and you're like, man, this is still pissing it off, then it's just too sensitive at all, like altogether. And you have to change the exercise. Um, and this is, again, this, this is not like a new rehab type protocol or approach. This is the same kind of sequence of how we approach rehab stuff that we've been saying for, for years at this point. But um, it's just very, it can be frustrating for people who are very goal oriented and driven towards a particular task or want to achieve certain things. But sorry, like that, I wish there was a better, there's no, there's no other way around this. Uh, this is just, just what needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, so the one you're doing this sort of like retrospective deal where, oh, if that you know, makes it angry or sensitive or whatever. Okay, we need to move away from either that movement, that amount of load, etc. One one other bigger difference is that when people are sensitized to a movement and they can't do it in a session, uh, one strategy we use is to use um, like direct threat isolation type exercises at the beginning of the session, um, such that they can actively participate in the desired movements or some type. So for, for example, somebody with knee pain may do like leg extensions first, and then maybe like a Spanish squat, like an isometric squat, for example, before they do a tempo squat to pins, you know, because we're trying to get them able to squat during that session. But this person might be able to squat right off the bat. They don't need that sort of desensitization to begin the session, but I'd probably still do that at the end of the session. Um, just to get, again, sort of, preempt any sort of sensitization that they're currently having. Um, and eventually, you know, you're not going to have it anymore. You don't have to do it forever. But um, yeah, I just think you're, you're kind of changing how you're evaluating. Uh, is this working or not? Because people who are sensitized during a session, they kind of know right away, but now you, you have to do it later. So, okay. I like that answer. Also the quote from Jeff Goldblum, I, this was bothering me. I, I had to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And I yeah. think <laughs> relatable, relatable, relatable. Okay. All right, Baraki, topical question. Why are heavy squats and deadlifts so dangerous? This this guy had five O's on the so. And so I think that was the appropriate duration of the so. Why are heavy squats and deadlifts so dangerous? What's what's your take on that? Oh boy. Uh I think for those who uh have not been paying attention, this has been something that's getting 
argued about a lot on the internet for the past couple weeks. It is not an argument that I personally have participated in. I have witnessed it from afar. You've participated in it a bit. Other people have participated in it a lot more. And there are, um, I guess, unsurprisingly strong opinions about this, despite um, not having the amount quality or strength of evidence to support very, very strong opinions. And I think that, you know, these strong opinions are seem to be present all over the map in terms of the the positions that, that people are taking on this. Like, you know, there's no injury risk whatsoever to doing these things all the way to like they're, they're, they're mangling people's bodies was a, a quote that has, <laughs> that has been said about these things. And so it's a bit frustrating, and it's uh, it's it's something that I think was was timely that I was reading that book, <laughs> how minds change, uh, just to to witness all the the human brains doing what they tend to do in this argument, and also helpful to not dive in necessarily. But the topic of injury and pain in the context of resistance training and more uh, powerlifting focused training is something we've been talking about for a super long time. And this is something that could have, and maybe will have a podcast of its own because it's been a while since we've talked about this topic. And I imagine we've accumulated some listeners since the last time we tackled some more uh, in-depth pain related stuff, but even just the topic of what an injury is, uh, is, is a very complex, un, uh, uh, actually philosophical topic and 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 some may roll their eyes at that uh, at that assertion but really it is in the sense that different people will experience these things radically differently again even if like the same stimulus is being delivered even if the same thing is happening at the level of their tissues things like that so it's really difficult to study this being that that's one of the issues that arises is it's quite difficult to study this because defining what an injury is uh, also oftentimes hinges on pain. It hinges on things like time loss, which you've talked about before, taking time away from training, having to modify training, skipping competition. There's all sorts of different criteria or variables that you can tie into this. And so it's very difficult to study. Uh, and that leads us to have research that is not of, you know, the same level of quality that we would like to have to hold really strong opinions. And and nonetheless, people are holding really, really strong opinions on this. Um, I don't know that I have a super strong, I, I actually know that I do not have a super strong opinion on this. My, our bias, I think in general, is that uh, humans can adapt to a ton of different things. And there's nothing about the actual movement of squatting or deadlifting that is itself uh, inherently dangerous or injurious compared to almost any other movement that humans can do. And there, there are other sports and tasks that people put themselves into much wackier positions, uh, put themselves under, you know, substantial mechanical loads and things like that. And people don't seem to freak out about many of those nearly as much as they do about this particular sport. Maybe there's something about the visual aspect of it. Like when my eyes are popping out of my skull and stuff like that. And we get all these responses of people saying, you know, that obviously can't be healthy and things like that. But, um, is there some, you know, is, is there, is it likely that there's some relationship between the total amount of loading that somebody, you know, applies to themselves and their risk of injury? Yeah, I think that's probably likely. Um, but still, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this isn't like a, this can't be the hot take, right? That like, loading an area it may increase risk of having physical symptoms in that area compared to not loading it at all. Like, that can't be the hot take. Because like, I'm, of course, that's 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 likely to be true, but I, I think the problem I have here is asserting that squats and deadlifts, just as a general like movement pattern, that those are uniquely, you know, dangerous, increased risk of injury compared to other 
maybe more fixed movement patterns. So like compared to like a leg press and like mechanized hip hinge sort of pattern. And that if you load these things relatively heavy, which is going to be unique for each individual, so up to like two reps in reserve for a set of five or three, that that's a uniquely dangerous like loading protocol compared to a set of 10 at RP8 or two reps in reserve, which is going to be lighter, but you're still maintaining the same proximity to failure. I think these are fine questions to ask, uh, but at what cost, right? Like, you know, is there this thing like we're powerlifting, like the the rise of powerlifting in the in recent years to a whopping 30,000, you know, members in the USAPL uh, or something like that has uniquely like romanticized powerlifting training and that's causing a rash of injuries due to increased participation in these resistance training practices. I'm like, no, dude, like virtually nobody is meeting (laughs) the physical activity guideline uh, minimums, both resistance training and conditioning. More people do conditioning than do resistance training. And then those who do do resistance training tend to miss the mark, you know, either due to reduced duration, not exercising all the major muscle groups, things of that nature. And, and so it's like, okay, these are fine questions to ask, but we should probably be careful like how we ask them and then like to what degree of certainty we hold about what the actual risk is. And so, yeah, I agree. It's it's difficult to define what an injury is. You talked about time loss. So like if you have to miss a game or practice or whatever, that'd be one way to define injury in, in the literature. Another one's physical symptoms. Like if you have any physical symptoms that you report, so some knee discomfort, low back pain, uh, shoulder discomfort or whatever, or if you saw a doctor or if you're taking an analgesic, some sort of like pain medication, even if you do that prophylactically, like those all count as injuries. And so if anything, the way I view the injury literature is that if anything, the rates in there are probably, you know, maybe more overreporting than underreporting. You know, it obviously depends on, on the, on the cohort. Right, maybe in like collegiate sports where if you have an injury, you can't play, maybe it's under. But like in the general public, it may be higher because you're like, hey, have you ever had shoulder pain? They're like, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, right? The most interesting study on this, and this is not in resistance training, but this is in conditioning. There was a year-long study. They took 200 people. 100 of them uh, uh, remained insufficiently active, so relatively sedentary. They didn't do any exercise. The other 100 who were previously sedentary um, started an exercise program where they worked out six days a week doing, I think it was an hour of conditioning each time. And they looked at injury incidents between the two groups. So the people who weren't exercising at all and the people who were exercising, and it was the same. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah, dude, there's an injury risk from not being physically active. And it, it's it's just like part of the human experience. Like, So there's some base level rate of injuries. There's also some risk of not training a particular movement pattern, right? Not becoming proficient in these things. And I think if you're really looking at risk reduction, like I don't think that I'd focus on the actual movement itself, particularly with respect to like low velocity, very stationary <laughs> exercises. I'd look more at the loading, you know. Um, but even with that, people are like, oh, yeah, so don't do things at high velocity. And I'm like, well, then why do, uh, ex- you know, competitive barbell sports like CrossFit and Olympic weightlifting not have different injury risks compared to powerlifting, which are also low, particularly when you compare them to other non-contact sports and contact sports. And so the only way you can like get to this, like why are squats and deadlifts so dangerous is just you, you either say all the data is trash 
And, and I think you can make that argument. You could say, look, the definition of injury is tough. The, all these studies use different definitions of injury. And so it's not great. And so it's like this unicorn fallacy. It's like, yeah, well, the data isn't perfect, so we shouldn't use it. And so then you're doing like anecdote. And, and I'm saying like, how many people do you think that you've taught how to squat, bench, deadlift, carried through some sort of exercise program at this point? I mean, thousands, right? Same, same for me. And I'm like, well, anecdotally, it seems pretty low risk compared to the, you know, amount of people we see in, in clinic that are like, I hurt my knee gardening or like yeah. I stepped off a curb wrong or whatever. It's like, yeah. Man, if I think about like, how, if I think about how many of them have had catastrophic injuries, it's like effectively none. How many of them have had some form of pain or injury? Plenty. And I compare that to how many of them, uh, how, what's that proportion compared to like the people that I see in my clinical practice, be it in outpatients or in inpatients who have some form of a, an acute or a persistent pain related issue. And those are almost always people who do not train, particularly those that I see in the hospital. Uh, and it's like almost all of them <laughs> of some sort. So it's, and, and that's again, just anecdote. I'm not like standing on that as like, Hey, this is my like proof of anything. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it's tough to say these things. And so we definitely tend back towards, um, you know, focusing on the loading, um, regardless of the activity rather than particular movements, we can move all kinds of ways and yeah. do all right with it. Yeah. And if you want to go back to the data, you, you look at like, all right, well, of these injuries that we see in, in powerlifting and other barbell sports, like how many of these are catastrophic and it's like less than 15% of them. So most of them are not catastrophic. Most of them resolve in less than two weeks on their own without any specific intervention. And so you're like, overall, this seems like a pretty decent bet, even if you're talking about competitive barbell sports. And so if I'm designing like, what is the most risk averse training program uh, that still meets physical activity guidelines, I'm not barring any real movements from there. I'm saying you need to train all the major muscle groups through a relatively large range of motion that's currently accessible to the individual at an intensity that is somewhat difficult multiple times per week using self-selected exercises. Because, you know, people aren't going to be like, yeah, I want to jump off of a plyo box to do, you know, to do some, <laughs> uh, you know, plyometric type training if they're like, I think I actually may break both femurs if I do that. Like, <laughs> People and I think smart it, like that. And I think the la the last thing I would say is that part of this argument that's been going on seems to hinge on the idea or the claim that like people are putting out there or or making strong recommendations for squatting and deadlifting as movements that you must do like for health or to get, you know, to, to get muscular or something like that. And I don't think that that's something we've ever claimed or, or recommended. We, per, we personally just like enjoy them, but I think that we have made pretty ample and pre made, made pretty clear that like, you know, we don't really think that there are any required exercises that you must do or, or any that you must avoid at all costs. Uh, that's why so much of this stuff is self-selected. As you said, um, there's no unique benefit of squatting or deadlifting for health purposes. Um, the benefit of those things is, uh, getting better at those things. And, and our chosen sport, <laughs> if you want to call it, that is one that uh, happens to require that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I do think that there's risk of not training certain movement patterns though, and then being exposed to them in your day-to-day -day life. So if you never do any sort of like squat pattern, whether that be a barbell squat, a goblet squat, a leg press, which is a type of a squat E movement. And you're asked to like do that in your daily life at some intensity that you've never seen before un otherwise unprepared for. Well, that may increase your risk of injury in life. Uh, same like thing with standing up if you're sufficiently frail and old. <laughs> yeah. Know. But do you need to do singles at eight? Like, of course not. And do you need to squat with a bar on your back? Of course not. You can live a full and complete life without doing it. We just like it.
personally. <sighs> Look, man, we answered questions from the internet. We did it. Um, well, this has been episode 188. Maybe maybe 188 and 189. We might split this up because yeah, people fall off on the listenership. Um, but in any case, thank you guys for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out to Dr. Baraki for suffering through all of my questions, hypotheticals, etc. cetera. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.